But a surfer cannot control the wave. The surfer cannot make the wave be any particular way. The wave is going to unfold how it unfolds. It's going to roll the way it rolls. Where the surfer has power is how they engage with that wave and essentially how they create with the wave because their responses dictate what kind of a ride they create with that wave. Um, and that's where they have power, not in trying to control the wave as such. So, you know, I, I recognize that the world is predominantly forces beyond my control. to Mysterious World. This is Stuart Pop. Thanks for joining me today as I take a deep dive into the mind of James Tripp. We explore the differences between science and magic. Fun Seekers, Stuart Palm here. Uh, thank you for joining us again. Uh, it's been a while, and, and it's a new year since the last uh, podcast I created for you all. Uh, so happy new year on both the Western solar and lunar new year. Um, I, I recorded this a while back, uh, a couple months ago, I believe, um, what you're about to hear. And... Um, and I, and I started uh, editing it on the 25th of uh, January. The 25th of January is Chinese New Year. So, Gong Kang Fa Choi. San Tai Ding Hong. San Mi Fry Lat. For those who understand. Those are all basically Cantonese uh, wishes of well. They are, in a sense, words of magic, special spells of prosperity toward one another. The tradition of Chinese New Year is fabulous. Um, families get together, for those who don't know, uh, at, an, at a, an elder's home. Everyone comes and they exchange what they call here lysi, which are red packets. They're red money envelopes with money inside. And the structure of giving is a beautiful thing. Um, married people, elders, give money to the younger, uh, the children, and the unmarried. And it seems to share the wealth rather effectively around, um, unless you're a Westerner coming to Asia and then you uh, you didn't have this tradition your whole life. And then all of a sudden, if you get married, you, you're giving out packets. But but I, but I still, you know, it's great. Um, so my kids get a bunch of red packets. My, we give out red packets to other people and and it's a it's a sharing of prosperity wishes to one another um and usually there's a many gatherings of family and gatherings for performances of lion dances and dragon puppetry and it's a great holiday fireworks all kinds of things uh, only this year a lot of this the, the gathering of groups has been curtailed by fear the fear of the coronavirus from Wuhan, which is has some cases of, I think only five, but some cases are here in Hong Kong, but it's driven people nuts in 
worry. And, and, and instead of dwelling on the negatives on either side of things, I'm going to instead decide to focus my mind on congratulating us. Not because of anything negative. Congratulating us on being able to share the knowledge that there is a thing of danger that may be threatening the world and to act quickly as we know how to prevent it spreading wider. Because I think that we're going to keep this under wraps to, to a good degree compared to things in the past such as the Spanish flu which killed more people than all in World War One and World War Two. I learned recently. So here is the wishes of well of health for the season of winter to you all. I say that prayer to everyone. I wish you good health. Uh, also, on the 25th of January um, was Robert, uh, well, Burns Night. So Robert Burns Celebration, uh, which which I did grow up in a little thematically Scottish town in Florida. So I, I'd heard of Burns Night, but I'd never actually been to one. And, and, and it was fascinating. I went to a friend's and uh, a guy from Glasgow recited to a haggis, to the haggis, from memory, beautifully, acting it out. It was great. Uh, even though I don't eat meats, uh, I enjoyed this ode to a food and um, the presentation of it, drinking scotch that night, and um, the sense of camaraderie and connection that such celebrations bring to us. And while I'm not one to go head over heels into religious celebration, I do enjoy those that we have, especially those that are not connected toward worship of one thing or another, but have imbued in them magical practice. And that's what this recording you're about to hear, this conversation I had with James Tripp is sort of about. It's about that we need the magic um, and I, as I was listening to it again and editing it just now, which actually there was not much editing, it's pretty much the entire conversation we had from one side to the other, and then uh, which which doesn't normally I do a lot of editing. Um, this might be my my favorite of the the episodes of Mysterious World that I've created so far. Uh, it's there's so I'm going to be listening to it over and over because there's so much in his message and, and, and the things he's studying and the things he has to say. I really enjoyed that conversation. And it's funny because I did meet James Tripp in Edinburgh and my first impression, because he was in a very analytic form of mind, he did not stay very long and he left just a tad bit after we arrived uh, meeting up with Anthony Jackwin, which was a fabulous time. Um, the, my, he was, he was in an analytical mind frame. So I, I didn't get much impression other than that. I don't think he understood where I was coming from and, uh, seemed blocked off, but man, is he not. And maybe he is an analytical person, which gives us this wonderful conversation and mindset that he has, but, but it's only helped to fuel him into a wonderful place. Uh, 
I like meeting people like this and and delving into their minds, and it inspires me to read more, to study more, to in, to push myself further into being better and being more. And I hope that 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 sort of inspirational feeling is given from this podcast as well, because that's really its intent is to create a place of magic to inspire you to do more, learn more, be more, be more yourself and build yourself better. Uh, you might be hearing in the background, there's, there's a lot of people chattering loudly. And I, I think that's just the gathering of uh, uh, New Year's celebration. It's Monday today. Um, 27th, I believe. So um, another little musing I was having while listening back to this was that um, when people learn physical uh, magic, deceptive magic, sleight of hand type things, um, that you are in effect learning a metaphor in the experience for how to deal with real magic. In multiple ways, and one that I had not thought of before was the fact that when you learn to sleight a hand, uh, invariably you fail. And you fail and someone sees that the coin or whatever, the ball is still in the one hand when you've put it in the other. Learning this at any age, you learn to hide these things better by not failing. And you learn that once you've failed, once you've failed for someone and they see you do it, if you try to do it again soon after, it's not going to be effective. There's no wonder left. You've killed it. You've sucked the magic right out of it. And the power of magic is, is tied to that somehow, that, that even the real magic in the world, the magic that can be created through chaos, through recitations of spells, through practices that are old, that if you go and explain them away, if you try to analytically take apart the pieces that you remove the pieces, you remove the magic, the pieces must stay. And, and James touches on that in a very beautiful way toward the end of this recording, but you have to listen to the whole thing to be connected to it correctly. So I will not ramble on any more than to say in many ways, Happy New Year to you all. And thanks for coming back and enjoy my conversation with James Tripp. Have you, do you, I don't know if you've read any of Nassim Nicholas Taleb's stuff. No. Uh, he's the author of The Black Swan, but he has an idea. A lot of his stuff is about um, about complexity and how you engage with complexity and engage with complexity in generative ways. Uh, one of his fundamental ideas is expose yourself to serendipity. I like that. So the more you get out, I, I, I like it a lot. So, the, you know, if you hide in a cave somewhere up a, a mountain, not a lot that's generative is going to happen in the world. But if you get out there and have conversations and meet people, well, you cannot connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. So I kind of got back on to accepting more offers to do podcasts and things because 
to me, it's part of exposing myself to serendipity. Who knows what unfolds going forward from this moment? Yeah, sure. And you have to go out for a walk to be able to exactly. randomly meet people who were perfect. You were just thinking about them. <laughs> Indeed, so yeah, yes. that makes I, I like that. That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we actually met once. We did in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, which was quite funny <laughs> because I yeah. think I confused you. Uh, uh, with a question and the, the question I remember asking was have you been hypnotized and I think you thought that I didn't know who you were um, and and the point of the point of my asking that question was that I've met a lot of uh, very well established people in the world of things that call, get called hypnosis who've never experienced it themselves so every time I meet somebody who's in that I'm, I, I ask them that question I, I should have t- chatted with you a bit so we had more of a <laughs> Uh, right prerequisite for what I was talking about um, yeah but but I find it interesting how many people who do these things for other people have not had that experience themselves uh, and I, mm. I was doing it for a while myself before I'd had a full um, a full-on you know uh, understanding of by personal experience of, mm. of what it is mm. um, and, and part of the reason I asked you was because you, you did this without trance is part of your right. thing. Yeah. Um, and and um, I haven't delved into it, but what does that mean? I'm sure you've been asked that question a million times, but what is trance? Okay, so um, the, the thing I want to be clear about is because I, a number of years ago, popped up online with a blog called Hypnosis Without Trance, and, um, and, and I meant something very specific by that. And occasionally I use the term trance now, but in a different kind of way. And people sometimes jump up and say, James, I thought you said there wasn't anything called trance. Right. So I'm aware that I'm, I'm confusing people by sometimes using the term and then also calling my thing hypnosis without trance. So to be clear about what I mean by hypnosis without trance, when I learned hypnosis, I was taught that hypnosis was about putting people into a very particular state, a sort of signature state, which is sometimes called trance and sometimes just called hypnosis by different people. And that the whole name of the game was to put people into that state. And when they were in this state, they would become uniquely responsive to suggestion in a way that they would not otherwise be. Sure. Um, I was also taught that this particular state called trance had particular analogs that you could spot in people's physiology and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I got adept at doing these trance inductions and putting people into this state. I'm doing some air quotes as I'm saying state. <laughs> right. um, and, uh, and, and I would spot the trance analogs. And I used to do this for quite a while because I was a hypnotherapist before I started to get into street hypnosis and this kind of thing. So I put people into this state and I'd, I'd take them through, you know, on, a, on an inner journey that was uh, intended to be of use to them. Mm-hmm. But when I got into doing street hypnosis stuff and playing with hypnotic phenomena, what I found was that I would often, I could get people into this state and they wouldn't respond to the, the phenomena suggestions. Um, so that seemed odd because the phenomena I was going for, I've been told were deep trance phenomena, right, yep. specifically they were deep trance phenomena. Now I also, going back even further, I've done this in the wrong order, but 
I didn't get into hypnosis to be a hypnotist as such. I initially got into NLP and I was more interested in conversational suggestion and this kind of thing. So that appealed to me more, the conversational hypnosis side of things. So when I started hanging around with the street hypnosis people, I saw the things they were doing and I just thought to myself, well, look, um, I'd like to, uh, I would much prefer to just be able to do this sort of thing more conversationally, more informally, and really, surely it should be doable. Right. Because people seem to respond to suggestion anyway. Uh, and I started to do many of the things that the street hypnosis people were doing, but without the trance inductions. And at the time, my colleagues on the street hypnosis scene were so uh, bought into this trance paradigm that they, they were sort of mystified that I was able to do this without doing these trance inductions. Sure. Uh, so um, it, became a, it became a tagline in that sense. It just became a tagline in that sense, yeah, just to, to sort of mark out my approach to hypnosis. And I was doing things, you know, a lot of sticking phenomena, uh, idiomotor stuff. Mm -hmm. I'd do some amnesia stuff, occasionally so, do some hallucination so stuff. For example, uh, a, a street hypnosis, which is not a thing that, that you see where I live, but, but I like right. that it's like a, a thing in England, uh, in Scotland. Um, someone might do the handshake induction and then after the handshake induction they make it so that their foot's stuck to the ground and they can't walk around and they can't come and get the money and you're just saying yeah. your foot's stuck to the ground and then and then it is right I mean I think the difference is the the sort of pa the, the dominant model when I was uh, on the street hypnosis scene which was in the London street hypnosis scene I'm in Edinburgh now but I've only been here for a couple of years right um, the dominant model was to do some sort of rapid induction, you know, a rapid induction, a deep and a sequence. People would give the super suggestion, which was a thing at the time, it was a big thing, I think it came from John Chase, which was from now on anything I say will become your reality, absolutely and completely and without question. Um, and then it would be taking somebody in, giving a suggestion, saying uh, in a moment when I, when I say one, two, wide awake, you will uh, believe that you are a Martian or something. One, two, wide awake. Sure. Um, and, th and then giving suggestions. So there will be a sort of a, a, a trance induction, a suggestion, a wake up, they would enact the suggestion, then sleep would be repeated to re-trigger the quote unquote trance state, more suggestions given. So it's sort of in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, and every time suggestions were given, people were put in. Mm -hmm. um, so, I just started to look at the things that people were doing and then I think, well, I want to stick someone to something. So what if I'm just having a conversation with them in a coffee shop and, you know, and, and it unfolds in a certain way and I invite them to place their hand on the table. And what I do with my approach to hypnosis is I'm really using language and communication to directly facilitate and shape experience for right. people. So that's, you know, that's the the approach. I'm looking at how my words are crafting the moment, how my actions are crafting the moment. And I want to draw people in. If there's, you know, if there's an in anything, it's just purely in a sort of, um, in, a, in a sort of a, a, an absorbed experience of whatever is being shaped. So you could call that a trance. Yeah, but sure. as far as I'm concerned, it, is, it, it isn't one specific state. Yeah, you know, well, trance, I mean, conversation, I would, want to I would it. call trance. Right. So, yeah, right. I'm so with that, you there. That, that brings me to the other side. So when I say, when I start to talk about trance, when I use the word trance, 
when I'm actually using it, mm-hmm. I use it in a very different way. So instead of meaning a very specific state that is inducible by hypnosis and isn't present any other time, I tend to use trance to mean any state that a human being is in from which automated behaviors and responses emerge, right. which actually is every single possible state, state that anyone could be in. Right. So uh, you know, there, there there is no no trance. There is, we're in one kind of a trance or another all the time. Totally agree. Uh, so that's where I kind of come from now. But I've still got the hypnosis without trance moniker because, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. People know me by that. Yeah. Uh, the the artist formerly known as Prince still was Prince. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So, so I, I pulled up your uh, your website and and I like this title you have of uh, personal adaptedness and creation dynamics. I, I, ah, yeah, I, that, that's always changing. I love, is it changing? I love the kinds of, because we always are struggling on what do we call ourselves? How do we frame this for people? Who am I selling to? What is, who's going to look at this? What is it about? And, and mm. you know, I, I imagine that works well for business people and uh, clients who are looking for a uh, someone to coach them on life, I guess, in mm. a, in a, in, mm. but not as quote unquote life coach. Is that kind of what you're yeah. aiming at there? I, I just, I've always had an aversion to life coach. Yeah, me um, too. Me too. It's something that's easy to make fun of in a comedy movie. Right. And, and you know, what does it even mean? What exactly are we talking about there? What specifically are we doing if we're going to be a life coach? The first time I ever saw life coach advertised, I was absolutely incredulous i yeah. mean you know i i was just like well who the hell what an, what an arrogant so-and-so this person is to think they're going to coach you on life and then now um, we now have I, the life coach certifications and you know i mean come on yeah the yeah so it, it just seemed very presumptuous to me yeah i agree um so I, I never liked it i've got a different view now i have i have very good friends of mine who are excellent at what they do who will use the term life coach but to me I still get a little bit of a shudder around it. Personally, um, I throw in the word coaching under under the list of things that I do. And right, that yeah. seems to be enough for people to go, oh, okay, this will start yeah. somewhere. And, and uh, you know, what, what's the goal? Let's work on getting you there is basically the way I see it if I'm helping an individual. You know, right. And it's an interesting thing. I mean, I don't label myself as a coach. I don't think I am a coach. Right. Um, I offer certain sorts of coaching, and I'm, you know, and I, I'm going to be specific. And what do you want coaching on? If somebody comes in and I'm having a conversation, and they're saying, "I want, you know, I want to do this very specific thing," and I think to myself, "That doesn't really gel with my worldview. It doesn't seem plausible to me." Right. I'm not going to coach somebody on that. You know, I'm going to get clear what it is they want to shift, what it is they want to get happening, and I'll make a an assessment as to whether I think I can work with them usefully in helping them make that happen. Whether it's, you know, whether it's quote unquote coaching or not, I don't know. I have <laughs> useful conversations with people most of the time. That's my aim. Fantastic. Um, so I, I wanted to, um, you're on my list already, but I really wanted to get you for this podcast when I saw the video that you put up on YouTube um, about the difference between 
magic and science and magical things mm. and scientific things. And, and I have been in that conversation for my whole life, I feel, um, of, of mm. meeting people and having to try and uh, just explain what the difference is or, or, you know, say, yes, you can have both and it's okay. Um, and you did it more succinctly than I've ever seen it. And since I watched that, uh, I've been able to more clearly explain it quickly to people when they have the same concern. So thank you for that. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, but but uh, I would love to sort of go over what your point was there or, or, or to sort of um, have that conversation again as well. Uh, but also people should just go watch your video because it was great. Where, where do you see that video? We'll, we'll put all your stuff of where people should go look up things and stuff at the end. But for that video in particular on YouTube, the channel is Hypnosis Without the, the Chance. Or, Actually, the channel is James Trip Chaos Wave. Oh, cool. Chaos, um, W-A-V-E wave? Yeah, W-A-V-E, Chaos Wave. Cool. Um, Where that's it? the channel, and it, it's, I don't know, it's a few videos back now. Sure. Uh, but it's, uh, I can't even remember what the title is, but it's probably something like Magic versus Science or something like that. Um, and I put the verses in the title of that, even though that's completely contrary to the message of the video, is that they're not in contradiction at all because they're operating in entirely different domains. Uh, well, it worked. But the verse is in there. Because whatever it, the titling it, it worked, explained. because I, I read it wrong, I think. And I, yeah. I went into it with, uh, with all my guards up, thinking, yeah. oh, here's another person who's going to say that um, magical things are bollocks. I mean, that's, that's where I, what I went into it thinking maybe it was going to be. And I was so, so delighted. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, 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 I should have read that more clearly. I just glanced and went, wait, wait, what, what? Uh, well, you know, the, the point of the title is to get people get people through the door. Sure. Um, you know, I don't want a title that's completely clickbaity and has nothing to do with the content. No, it was, it, was also, a, it was a good title, which I now yeah, can't I remember, want, but I, I remember I get people. thinking it was good. Yeah. So, so the, 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 you, you, you've seen this as well. There's a, there's a, there's a clash of cultures mm -hmm. that seems to um uh seems to be going on out there and i have friends in both of these cultures yes uh, the magic culture and the, the science culture and i myself um and and just for a second have, because of the viewership uh, the listenership or whatever you call it of this is very mixed as well when you're saying magic cultures you're not talking about pick a card per se we're talking no 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 we're talking no, no. uh Chaos magic and magic with a K yeah. and 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 hoodoo and and all things supernatural quote unquote magic. I don't. I'm not yes. actually sure what the right term is anymore. But magic is a very good one. But it also connotes yeah. connotes rabbits out of hats. So not we're not talking yeah. about rabbits out of hats. We're not talking about rabbits out of hats. We're talking about um, you know real magic, which to me you know is really the art of bringing things about in the world in mysterious and non-linear ways. And it's, it's something that kind of, I think, I think resists definition. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in my own view is magic, when it is happening, isn't necessarily supernatural. Right. Um, 
But it does, but what is occurring, you know, the, the, the means of operation are occurring outside of our normal mappings of reality. So we can't, it doesn't quite add up in a, in a linear clockwork way, uh, how this led to that. Um, and I don't pretend to understand what goes on beneath the surface, but I suspect that it's not supernatural and it is indeed natural, but our understanding of natural perhaps uh, hasn't, doesn't incorporate the, the mechanisms by which whatever magical thing is working. Um, or maybe it does, I don't know. But no, the, the point of the matter is, is for me, is I'm, I'm a guy who has, when I was, when I was a kid, uh, I loved the magical stuff. And when I was a, a teenager, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons, for example, and I was, I was always an illusionist or a, uh, a, a magician or a, a wizard or something. You know, I was always, I, the, the magical side of things drew me sure. greatly. Um, and, and I don't know why, it just did. It always just appealed to me. When you were younger, did There's you probably, make potions? I did. I made potions, yes. all manner of things. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, there was just something there, something archetypal uh-huh. uh, that, that, that drew me. Um, but, you know, I, I also explored with psychic development and stuff in my teens now, the thing is, I was always caught between these two poles because I was quite a critical thinker as well. I, wouldn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't one to accept things on face value. And then in my early 20s, I did a philosophy degree in the Anglo-American analytic tradition. Very nice. Um, which, which kind of honed my, my tools of skepticism, uh, refined them somewhat. So I, I kind of became more of a, a skeptical, critical thinker. Uh, and I got into Chinese martial arts, particularly the internal martial arts. There were a lot of people doing energy stuff in that. Mm-hmm. And I was able to experience that, but also break it down skeptically and come up with more rational models and these sorts of things. So I sort of danced this. And also when I got into the world of magic, the other magic with yeah. cards and rabbits and hats, or, or more really the mentalism end of things. There's sure. a lot of people in that world who are also very skeptical thinkers. They are part of the skeptical community as well. Right. I, I, um, I call and them And I think partly sort of starting to see... <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Right. Yes. They are skeptical evangelists. They read Skeptical Inquirer unskeptically. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I kind of um, I had a lot of influence on that and, I, and started to see that a lot of things could be created through trickery. Like once you start to understand psychological mechanisms that could be behind, say, uh, behind what a reader is doing, a very successful reader, uh, well, well, the magic starts to fall away. And that's kind of what happened for me for a long time is, is magic fell away. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like my life was improved by the magic falling away. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, in a lot of ways, things became, well, they became less magical, which I didn't actually like, just purely on a phenomenological level. And I actually found that there were certain results that I seemed to be able to get with more magical thinking or more magical approaches to things that I was unable to get with more mechanistic renderings and models. Sure. Uh, so, you know, but I can still, I can still appreciate science. I can, I, I can, I can appreciate scientific thinking um, and what it does. 
And it created a lot of tension for me for a long time between these two poles, being more rational, being more scientific, seeing the benefit of that, not wanting to be uh, you know, a, a gullible fool that falls for any old um, set of ideas dumped in my lap versus actually appreciating the magical and more magical way of engaging with the world that that actually has some pragmatism to it and can create results that don't seem to be easily generated in other ways. Yeah. Um, but I, I was delivered from my tension mm-hmm. by a chap called Lionel Snell, also known as Ramsey Dukes. Okay. He was a fantastic fellow. I don't know if you know I've heard, Lionel. I've heard of him and, 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 and looked into the, him a little bit, but, he's, but I don't know. Um, so, yeah, Li- Lionel uh, was really helpful for me in just reconciling any tension between those two positions. So, you know, while the content of that video you say has been very useful for you, which I'm absolutely delighted, really I'm sort of passing on understandings that, that Lionel helped me greatly to connect with. So sure. I'm very appreciative to, to Lionel for that. Um, so the tension for me is gone, and now I can operate fully scientifically, and I can operate fully magically, and I don't have a problem because they're just different modes of engagement, so far as I'm concerned, with very, very different intentions behind them. Yeah. They are, they are about doing a different thing. So there's no more contradiction to me between magic and science anymore than there is between, I don't know, going and making a smoothie in my kitchen uh, and going out and having, you know, having a pizza. Yeah. There's no contradiction. I can do one or I can do the other. I don't have to agonize about what the correct approach is or pour, um, you know, disparity upon pizza eating while I'm doing my smoothie making. Sure. Uh, you know, they're, they're just different things with different outcomes, different intentions, I, I had different a, functions. I had a similar period of what I would call materialistic thinking uh, mm. where, because I, I grew up very magical minded making potions as a kid the same way uh cloud bursting Mm. tarot card reading you know i was into anything i could get my hands on uh and and wonder and be magical with and then Mm. it was through uh performance magic world it's through that world that i was introduced to the skeptic world which mm. did I had a period of, just like you of, of shutting that down and, and thinking uh, materialistically and thinking oh well I guess if if uh, Randy's been offering this million dollars and no one's claimed it it must be mean something uh, mm. and and then I rejected all of that and went no um, I think it's better to and I enjoy more and I get more out of and I find more value in uh, magical things of similar similar story arc but I think it was important that I did adopt a different way of thinking to understand it to then throw it out right Uh, and I think that's that's fair enough and one of the things I really like about say Lionel Snell mm -hmm. is that he is able to He's able to be—he's able to be very intelligent about his magical thinking. Sure, um, you know he—he doesn't—he doesn't have to kind of dodge around awkward truths or anything like this. Do you see what I mean? Or any awkward points? It's like he's really kind of reconciled 
a lot yeah. of stuff. And 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 the, one of my, I always feel like an outsider in whatever world. So in the in the materialistic minded rational world, I'm an outsider because my friends in that world think that I'm just a whack job who's into all sorts of out there stuff. Sure. But a lot of my more magical friends, to me, they see me as too uh, analytical or whatever. And and to me, they're too willing to embrace without any reflection, any old crap that gets dumped in their lap just yeah. because it's got a, a mystical flavor to it. And, and I don't want to knock that. I'm just saying that's not for me. I like to be able to think about things and think deeply about them mm-hmm. um, and, and not have to avoid looking something in the eye for fear that it, it, it dissolves away. So I really, I'm not putting that clearly enough, but... I understand what you're saying. Uh, uh, right. For example, well, I, I go through, it seems, waves of discovering or coming in contact with or being part of things that I go, this might be beyond my ability to process magically, or it hits me in a way that I'm like, that puts up a red flag that makes me think uh, that someone is trying to take advantage or that someone is full of shit, <laughs> you know, so if there's yeah, a red flag yeah. that goes up. But then sometimes over time of my looking into these things, that perspective changes and I open up to possibilities in it that I find that are useful, valuable. For example, uh, past life regressions. The first time I came across mm. that, I was very, well, I don't know because I didn't know. And part of that, mm. part of that is having, not having had that experience myself. Mm. But now I will do them. Mm. And now I will, I totally, now I can't tell you, and I will always introduce this as in um, the experience you have, there's no way for me to prove its, you know, rational validity as in that you were that person, but I find that it helps people and, you know, it's enjoyable. So there's something in there that's, very beneficial and there's people who want to take that leap however uh, if you go to taiwan there's a lady who does past life work who you sit down with apparently and she looks at you maybe takes your hand i'm not sure what the process is and she tells you what your past lives were oh in the very past you were uh, the queen of some european you know whatever and that, mm. that I go, well, okay, I don't you know that, that pulls up all kinds of red flags. So, yeah. so there's always a, everything has its own rainbow of, you know, something that I can say, yes, that magical world, I, I, I can accept it. And then there's always extremes, there's always extremes that make me go, eh, well, I don't know. That's part, you know, go, go, go find that lady, I guess, but doesn't sound, the, right. my skeptic side comes out and goes, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I, I think, you know, skepticism is a useful faculty. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, I want to be able to use that faculty, but not be completely, you know, I want, I want it to be my servant, not my master. Perfect, um, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's the same with any kind of thinking style or a way of rendering up reality. I want to be at cause with that. I want to be the master of that way of rendering up reality, not be at effect to it, not be had by it and have no choice. Um, 
so, you know, this is why for me, like something like past life regression, mm-hmm. which I think is a great example, I would once upon a time have felt very uneasy with that because I think, well, no, that seems like BS from, mm-hmm. a, from a sort of rational science perspective. Um, and now I'm at a position of going, yes, it is BS. It, it, not like it seems like it, but from a rational science perspective, it is BS. It is scientifically untrue what is happening there. Um, and now I know some people argue with me, but I'm actually grounded again, yes, it is scientifically untrue and magically completely true. Exactly. Um, and it, you know, it's irrelevant that it's scientifically untrue or whether it, it's not even it's relevant that it's scientifically untrue, whether it is or whether it isn't is irrelevant. It's just not even an important thing. Sure. And to get hung up on it is, and, and this is why I, you know, I'm less keen uh, on people who, there's a, you know, popular tendency at the moment to try and explain magic in terms of quantum physics and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But it's not something that overly appeals to me because I don't need to legitimize my magic with science because it's, it's a different thing, right? It's just completely different area. So um, any more than I would need to, if I was an artist, and any more than I'd need to legitimize my art with science. Sure. It, 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 it wouldn't make any sense. That's, if I was trying to legitimize my art. That is a perfect uh, equation of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. My background is art and and that makes total sense to me uh, that you you can't you wouldn't scientifically gauge art you, you don't you right. don't you don't scientifically gauge music you don't it's just not I guess yeah. I guess there are people who try but well I mean if you if you took uh, you know a, 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 a painting a painting by a, a great master a recognized artist and scientifically analyzed it well you know maybe you could say something about the composition of the uh, the pigments used and all of this, but right. you know, the the data would be useless. The data would be about the, the craft the... that enabled the art. Yeah, but you can't. Or even do even that even the, the science underneath the the art. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I get this a lot because I've worked a lot uh, in the field of mental health. So I spent a couple of years working with military veterans. Um, using quite a different approach. And many of the people we had seen and worked with have been through evidence-based protocols that have failed them, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a problem with an overly science-based way of thinking about things. Because so far as I'm concerned, helping people make uh, changes on a psychological level is a craft and not a science. Um, and the difference for me is craft is about developing skill to bring about certain outcomes. Science is about uncovering the quote unquote truth. Right. You know, and, and if people get those two different, those things confused, it doesn't necessarily help. I'm not saying that science cannot inform craft. Uh, in some ways. So, for example, uh, people might in, in pl- apply sports science in a training regime for a tennis player, for example. There might be some things that inform their training, but ultimately their craft as a tennis player is pure craft. It has nothing to do with science. And even if you explain some of it scientifically, 
um, that still wouldn't actually make any difference. That's not how the, the person who embodies the craft is thinking about it. Right. You know, you, you ask a fantastic tennis player to talk about what, what it's like when they're playing at their best, and you will hear no scientific descriptions whatsoever. Sure. And they might because have a lucky rabbit's foot or some magical talisman that helps them. Right. And they might talk about they might talk about energies or forces or whatever. Who knows what the hell they're going to talk about? But they're not going to be talking about anything in a scientific way. Right. Um, uh, I recently had another um, ex an experience that equated very well within the scientific world, which is that my my daughter uh, has had this off and on low grade fever for like two and a half weeks, like way longer than most things should go. And mm. and uh, so we took her to the doctor, and at first they said, oh, it's just, you just got a cold. Then they came back and, oh, well, maybe it's a, a virus. And they did the test. Oh, it is a virus. And the virus should last this amount of time. After that time, s still getting fever. Oh, well, then how about uh, we give her the, the antibiotic, gave her the antibiotic, so that would kill anything, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And still low-grade low fever. Uh, all through this, I've been observing that she has some back teeth coming in, which science mm. says does not cause fever. Mm. All of the uh, evidence-based studies on whether uh, teething causes fever say it's inconclusive or no. Mm. Yet if you ask any parent and many doctors, they will say, well, it's science, scientifically we have not found the correlation, but there's all sorts of anecdotal evidence and people every day come in with mild fevers from kids that are teething and then it goes away and there's, you know, like here's a thing, here's a thing, we don't, yeah. we don't know how to quantize it and study it with science because it's too hard to do because kids can't talk, right. you know, yet. Right. And, and so there's not, unless we were to take a bunch of toddlers and keep them in a, hermetic room and you know uh subject them to basically an abusive situation we're not mm. gonna know through science but yeah yes i mean and i was very happy to have the doctor say i, I think that this low fever now is just teething <laughs> it's like right thank you thank you for letting yeah. go of science for a moment and and uh answering with your experience and you know observations on that level um yes but i think that mo most art and mag magic things are exactly this there's just it's where science can't deal there's not a way for science to do that to understand it and right. i think it's funny that it even things that you'd think should be scientifically uh observable like does teething cause a fever can fall outside of that because because the way science is structured with uh, is not actually, I don't think, to find out the truth. It's to disprove things. Yeah, yeah. Which is a method to truth, I think. Is just yeah. like, you know, if you've disproved everything else, the only thing that the, whatever's left right. that is not disproved equals uh, current scientific truth. Right. Uh, until you find a new way of looking at it, of course. What is that called? There's a... That uh, whatever's left must be the answer, quote. 
Yeah, there's, there's the, the Sherlock Holmes yeah. one, isn't it? Once you've eliminated Con- the... Conan Doyle, the, the avid spiritualist. <laughs> yes. Yeah, once you've eliminated the... Uh, the, impos- the, the impossible, the, whatever's, whatever's left must yeah. be the truth or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is uh, this, uh, an interesting angle on that. But I mean, if you look at that in terms of... I mean, what, what a scientific approach might attempt to do is remove... Is they need to simplify things to test things, so they've got to take variables out. Sure, that's and this is some of the things you get when there is a scientific approach to testing the efficacy of uh, therapeutic protocols, for example. Oh, sure, yeah. They, you know, they end up having to take a, try try and artificially remove so many variables, which are real variables that are really in the mix in real situations. Yeah. So you know, it may or may not. There may or may not be some use. Uh, so I had a discussion with my friend Adam Eason and he was saying well, if you take something like the NLP VK dissociation slash fast phobia cure he says that's been rigorously tested and demonstrated to be bunk and I'm thinking wow because I've used that loads of times and got really great results sure um, and, and Adam says yes but what that demonstrates is that it's not doing the technique that gets the results. And, and I agree that it may not be. It's part of a package that's getting results. But the fact is, I can use it as a useful vehicle for getting certain results. Now, if you take away certain variables, it may no longer be a useful vehicle. But what science concludes is that we've proven that that isn't it. Right. Well, no, you haven't. You've proven that when you take away other variables that intersect with it, it doesn't work anymore. But that doesn't mean that it's not a key element you know, in a, in a set of intersections. So this reductionist scientific approach, I think, because it doesn't see that, you know, um, holes can be greater than the sum of their parts. This is the sort of the classic Western scientific paradigm. And things are changing now because you've got the science of cybernetics and systems dynamics and things like this, which sure. do recognize emergence and that sort of thing. But actually, you know, as I think, was it Thomas Kuhn that says science advances one funeral at a time? Mm-hmm. Right. So you've, you've still got a lot of the old school reductionist, linear thinking, mechanistic scientists around, people like Richard Dawkins, for example, you know, who are, are still loud voices in the field. And Richard Dawkins, I mean, he couldn't think systemically to save his life. He couldn't, he, you know, he doesn't. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm doing the guy down. Maybe I'm doing him a disservice. But, no, um, that's okay. You know, I, I, I think... Um, I think that's an issue with with a reductionist approach, which is often used in experimental conditions, particularly around things that I think are better suited to recognizing as 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 craft or even as as magic, like getting change with people. Uh, you know, I think there's a problem. I also think you know what you were talking about there with the the fever and the teeth. Mm-hmm. So the, the the classic cry from the science minded, and I get it because in a science uh, paradigm, this is a valid thing to say. Correlation doesn't equal causation. Totally. However, from a magical perspective, if you look at something like sympathetic magic, sympathetic magic is all about working with correlations. Yep. Um, and and I, I suspect that there is within our, if we take the view that human beings have evolved across a very long period of time, um, and many of the things that get pointed out as being cognitive biases, i.e., for example, rec- you know, assuming the correlation um, is akin to causation, 
that bias has served the evolution of our species clearly. Mm -hmm. It has functionality within it. Now, it may also have dysfunctionality within it, but if you can relate intelligently to um, utilizing correlations as heuristics for engagement with life and still be able to step back from that when it's useful to do so, you get to play both sides of the coin. You get to engage fully in a perhaps magical, sympathetic magic action of just going, well, I'll create the correlations and see if that creates the result that, I, that I've correlated with. Um, you know, you can use that, but you can still step back to it and evaluate and go, well, is it working out? Do I need to take a different tack? So I, I think that part of thinking magically is embracing a lot of stuff that gets dismissed as dysfunctional by the more science-minded and recognizing that, yes, it can be dysfunctional, but it isn't necessarily and it can be useful. And I call this bad magic. I was having a, a conversation nice. with my science-minded friend, Adam Eason. I don't know if you know Adam. You I, know Adam I know his podcast. Right. I, I know him so I, I love Adam. He's, yeah. He is genuinely one of my favorite people in the world, and we often end up debating, sometimes loudly. Nice. Um, because you know he's he's Mr. Science Geek, and that's his that's his that's his whole reality tunnel. Sure. And he's very happy there. And you know, one of his points why he's so against magic is because he thinks that magical thinking is dangerous and can point to many examples where people have been led astray by magical thinking. Okay. But my response to that is, Adam, that's that's just bad magic, right? It, it, you know, it's like it's like pointing out that somebody lost a tennis match, therefore tennis is bad. You know, ten, right. tennis doesn't work. Well, or if you it's hold just, if you hold the same mirror up to science, there's lots of bad science and lots of harm has been absolutely made in the name of science, and you know, right? It's like saying uh, all fortune tellers are out to scam you, or or uh, take advantage, where, whereas yeah. there's lots of good that can be done with a reading, uh, and, and you don't have to put it through that mirror. Right. Totally. And, of course, some fortune tellers are. Yes. <laughs> they they, oh, yeah, they totally are. <laughs> they do exist. Yeah. And, and some I, doctors you know, I, I are. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's, there's bad people all over the place. And I, I think this is the thing, and uh, this is another reason why I like to have an intelligent view of magic um, mm -hmm. in that for myself I'm, I'm kind of learning to engage more and more with magical thinking um, having sort of learnt to be very sceptical about it and I, I'm still learning to engage more and more and I wish to do so intelligently and I wish the magic and the magical thinking that I do uh, to be efficacious in producing goodness in my life. So I'm, I'm kind of monitoring that situation because I do have a distinction between, you know, I want to be doing good magic and not ma bad magic. I want to be doing generative magic and not uh, magic that's undermining things. So I don't approach that from a, a neurotic position of going like, what's right, what's wrong. I just do it from a position of engaging and observing results and modifying and allowing, you know, my approach to generatively grow from yeah. there. I, uh, which is why my channel's called Chaos Wave. By I was, the way, I was going. That was exactly the question I was going to ask. Well done. Uh, the next right, question in my yeah. mind was, and that is why you call it chaos. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I'm. You know. I do not believe. I mean, so far as I'm concerned, there's a quote which I've heard is is um, attributed to Werner Heisenberg. But you know these quotes you read on the internet. Sure. Who, who knows their origin? Uh, but it's it's something like. 
um, the universe is not only more complex than you think, it's more complex than you can think. Yeah. And I, I like that because generally speaking, I think pretty much it's not just the universe. If I sit down with a client, I'm aware that this client and their life and all that is relevant here is not any more complex than I think it's more complex than I can think. Any psychosocial dynamic is going to transcend my capacity to map it um, to any kind of high level of uh, resolution. So I'm always going to be working with complexity. I think we always are. And it's finding out how you meet that creatively rather than trying to control it or micromanage it or pin it down. Right. So the, the metaphor of a, a surfer, even though I don't surf myself, but a surfer cannot control the wave. The surfer cannot make the wave be any particular way. The wave is going to unfold how it unfolds. It's going to roll the way it rolls. Where the surfer has power is how they engage with that wave and essentially how they create with the wave because their responses dictate what kind of a ride they create with that wave. Um, and that's where they have power, not in trying to control the wave as such. So, you know, I, I recognize that the world is predominantly forces beyond my control. Yeah. But where I have power is how I, how I creatively respond to those and, and engage with them in order to create generally useful outcomes, more good things in my life and my family's life rather than less good things. Yeah, perfect. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's, so far as I'm concerned, magic is part of that because one of the things that magic is, if we're dealing with a, a richly complex reality, we need to find ways of engaging with that. Um, and we engage with it through how we render it up conceptually in our minds. And for me, a conceptual rendering that is fundamentally magical is often a highly functional one, often a lot more functional than a, um, than a purely scientific one. Yes. Sorry, I was I I uh, I like I like the words you're saying. Um, I was I was musing over the possibility of going out and creating waves, um, mm. or, or focusing on magically creating waves. Anyway, uh, the 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 actual quote is: "Not only is the universe stranger than we think, it's stranger than we can think." And I and I ah, and I like go. that. Stranger and complex equated in the in the the memory. Um, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a fun it's a fun correlation. Uh, strange mm. is is complex, but also not necessarily. Hey everybody! I just wanted to jump in for a quick message of thanks and a bit of a plug. Uh, the thanks is uh, for those who were involved in my Kickstarter, my first Kickstarter for Palms Oracle. This is a deck of Oracle cards that I'm designing and creating. Uh, I ran a Kickstarter for it, which was a big learning experience at uh, learning from failure in the beginning. I, I, I had to cancel it the first time around because I learned a lot of things that I'd done uh, wrong in terms of running a Kickstarter. And then the second time, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of stress, but it, it was effective and it was great. And I look forward to being able to have those for everyone in March. Uh, if you'd like to look into Palm's Oracle deck, you can do that on my website, stuartpalm.com, and just click on the Palm's Oracle button. You can pre-order a deck there. I have a button set up uh, for a PayPal order 
that you can order one deck. And if you'd like to order more than one deck, which actually I just had somebody order 24 decks, which is great, uh, just contact me through that or through my website uh, uh, contact button or at Stuart at Stuart Pot Dom sorry, Stuart at StuartPalm.com uh, on email, S-T-U-A-R-T-P-A-L-M. Um, so yeah, lots of ways to connect there. Also, if you are new to the worlds of magic and, and esoteric and metaphysical things and want to get into it more deeply, I have a book to help you do that. It's called Access Your Psychic Self, Volume 1, Beginner Pendulum Magic. Or if, if you want to learn more, or get deeper into the pendulum, this is a good way to start. Uh, you can find that on my shop page, uh, which is also on my website, or even on Amazon you can order that, uh, or you can directly order it through Lulu, who are a um, on-demand book publishing form, or service, rather. You can also uh, have readings from me. I do tarot and oracle readings mostly. I, I do different forms of that. Um, I also offer coaching and hypnosis at my studio here in Hong Kong. Uh, but you don't have to be in Hong Kong to have a reading with me. You can book a session online through my website at stuartpalm.com. Uh, just click the readings button, or I think it's actually stuartpalm.com slash readings uh, to do that. So I hope, uh, hope I get some of you jumping on that one. So thank you to all who have been involved or will be involved in uh, Palm's Oracle. It's my, uh, it's, it's my favorite project right now. Um, thanks to those of you who have uh, bought Beginning Pendulum Magic uh, and those who will. And, uh, and my blessings to all who have come or will come for readings. Um, aside from that, this year, the year of the rat, I pledge to myself and to you that I will be more regularly creating uh, this podcast. Uh, my plan is to be able to launch an episode every two weeks. Uh, I've noticed that that's a very effective way to do it for some others, and um, usually I just get behind. And so I need to be able to get things done, um, which is a thing I help other people to do as well. And it's funny that it's, it's much harder sometimes to do for yourself the things you do for others, such as the plumber who always has a broken sink. So um, I'll be doing more episodes. I already have in the can another episode recorded with Adam Cardone. Uh, I did one two episodes ago with him. And in that, in that session, we recorded it another hour. And so I have that ready um, when for when we launch the Church of Satan uh, deck of cards, which will be called the Satanic Playing Cards. Um, that, uh, that That's a whole nother thing. Uh, but but I, I'm really enjoying creating that as well. Got lots of design and illustration stuff working right now. Um, so hopefully you'll see that soon. If you'd like to check me out on Instagram, uh, you can follow me at Psychic Entertainer. And uh, Facebook, I'm Stuart Palm, uh, hypnotist and psychic entertainer, or psychic entertainer hypnotist. If you if you search Stuart Palm, you'll find all this stuff. Now back to the episode. Um, yeah. What is an experience that you've had that goes beyond your ability to understand it? 
Hmm. That's a tricky thing because one of the things that I got deadly good at doing is being able to explain away pretty much anything, however whacked, however far out, however crazy. Well, I, I could come I, up with I a rational that explanation. Mindset. And yeah, and uh, sometimes I find that I do that, and then I stop myself because I realize it's more valuable to be in wonder than it is to have right. a answer. Right. So I, what, what I will do is I will, I, I these days deliberately cultivate that and I suspend, um, I, I suspend my disbelief, I suppose. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, or I suspend my, you know, I suspend my skepticism. You turn off your um, analytical mind. Right. I mean, what, one example, this is just a thing that, that springs to my mind as I'm sat here mm-hmm. in this flat in Edinburgh, which I say we, we've been in for two years. And it's in a nice location in Edinburgh. We're in the west end of Edinburgh, uh, right in the city centre, west mm. end of the, the new town. Um, and we're in this... Kind of where the tourists Victorian, are? Uh, no, the tourists tend to be more over in the old town side. Okay. So the new town in Edinburgh, we met in the new town. So people think new town, it's not especially new. It's built in the, uh, largely in the 18th century. Right. Um, but it's called the new town because it's a lot newer than the old town. Sure. So uh, we, we have this nice apartment here. Now, when we were buying in Edinburgh, property prices were going up like crazy. And where we'd sold in England, they, the conveyancing took nearly six months because the buyers, solicitors were dragging their feet. All sorts of reasons. So we were starting to get fearful that we were going to get squeezed out the market. We were not going to have acted in time. And right. we wouldn't be able to get what we wanted to get. And we were getting more and more panicked and really trying to make things happen. And we literally looked at hundreds, well, I say hundreds, probably nearly a hundred flats in a quite a short time and made several offers and just we're not getting anywhere and prices are going up prices are going up and it got to the end of the year which would have been where 2019 the end of 2017 and i said to to lexi my wife i said look we need to change our thinking about this we need to change the way we're relating to this whole thing um sure and I, I basically did, I, I shifted gears into my version of what some people, some of the new thought stuff. I like some new thought authors. Uh, I've, yeah, got a lot of, I've got a lot of value from. Um, so I, I particularly like Wallace Wattles. I'm rather keen on Wallace, Wallace Wattles. I've got a lot of value from his writings. Uh, my friend Melissa hates his writings. So I guess it's a matter of taste. <laughs> uh, but I, I sort of shifted gears into that paradigm. And within a week, this flat that I'm sat in now came up on the market, came up in January, and it appeared suddenly. It had been on the market for a while and had gone off, and then it appeared. And during the week that it appeared, there was a snowstorm and nobody was going out. So nobody in the open viewings, no one went to the open viewings just in this week right. because of the adverse weather. And we went to the open viewing and the flat was way bigger than anything we'd been looking at and way beyond anything we'd been looking at. And instead of 
engaging with that line, I just sort of carried on hanging out in this magical space of creating it. And an interesting thing happened. So first of all, they, they said, you, we had an investor and they've pulled out and we don't want an investor now, we want a family. And we turned up with our two daughters to look at, at the place. So there's a good Perfect. thing. Um, yeah. Nobody else came to the viewing. And there was a strange thing about this flat in that it was listed by not an Edinburgh solicitor, but by a Fort William solicitor. And Fort William is nowhere near Edinburgh. It's like out in the middle mm. of nowhere up on the, uh, you know, halfway up Scotland on the, on the West Coast. And, um, and it's like, why would they list with a Fort William solicitor? Now, at the time, everything was going in Edinburgh at about 20% overvaluation. And there was no way we could afford this place at 20% overvaluation. So we, we put in an offer at the valuation price. And this is ludicrous. Right. Nobody would do this because nothing's going. You, you don't stand any chance. But I'm like, well, we'll do it anyway. We're just going to make an offer at that. And that's what's going to happen. And they came back and they said, ah, you know, if you could give us an extra 10,000. And we did. But basically, we paid 2.3% overvaluation where everything's going right. in Edinburgh at 20% overvaluation. Um, right. And, and it was because of all these, you know, I could rationalize it away and say it's all these different events, but the fact that these, these things came together. Now, I don't know, of course, I can say yes, but that could have happened. That you can, I can explain anything away. But to me, it's interesting that when I, that we'd been stuck grinding our gears, going nowhere, and then I shifted into a different mode of mind, and everything just went click and fell into place in this just sort of ludicrous way that, that, you, that couldn't have been predicted and was highly unlikely given the, the current market conditions or the market conditions at the time. Now, I don't want to evaluate that scientifically because if I evaluate that scientifically, well, I know where that goes. I can explain yeah. it away. Um, and if I explain it away, I won't do it again. Whereas if I if I live into the magic of it, then I start using that method more. And the thing that I find is the more I use methods of what I sometimes call nonlinear generative engagement, or you could call magic, the more interesting stuff happens, the more fortunate coincidences appear to occur. Yes. And, and, and like, I think it was, I think there's a, a, like an offhand line in one of Lionel Snell's books where he said, most magicians, would be happy indeed with the mere ability to engineer more coincidences in their life or something like that. It was something along those lines. I like that idea of engineering coincidences. There's a certain poetry right. to that. Opening your life to serendipity. Yeah. Where, where, where we started, yeah. Right, yeah, right. I agree completely. You know, you know, so I, I, I find that it's a more, that the magical mode to me in aggregate, and I may be biased in how I evaluate the evidence, and the way I evaluate evidence is different if I'm evaluating it magically than if I'm evaluating it scientifically. Well, I, I think of it in terms of, I'll, um, I put magic in the same box as I do hypnosis mm. and art mm. uh, and, and many other things that live in, in a supernatural uh, framework in in some way. Mm. I, I hate the word supernatural, but it, it makes sense when I say it. People understand which what I'm going for. Mm. Um, in in that 
they all relate to the unconscious, mm. which in itself is a model, but mm. <laughs> but they all relate. For me, it's all part of the same thing, and and when we're when we're trying to deliver something to the unconscious in conversation, we use metaphor. Mm. And if we unpack the metaphor, we destroy the effectiveness to a degree. Right. And I think the same thing happens if you try to explain away something magical in your life. Mm. You just let it let it work. Mm. <laughs> it's the simplest way to put it, I guess. Right. And I think part of that is is you know I. I will say, well, that you know, that that's metaphorical. But to me, part sure. of, of how I do magic is actually living into metaphor, um, uh -huh. and and giving that metaphor the, the gift of belief and an absolute reality. You know, while I choose to step mm -hmm. into it, so I'll kind of go gnostic with the metaphor, so to speak. Perfect. And yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm capable of being agnostic with the metaphor as well. I can step back from it and say, well, I don't know if that's true or not, and, and be more skeptical about it and relate to it. But mm -hmm. I also want to be able to kind of go Gnostic with the metaphor. And by that, I mean like know it in an embodied way, have it become a reality and kind of live into it. And, and I find that by living into different renderings of reality and by having the, the power and the choice to do that, different effects ripple out from that in life. That's what appears to happen. And I find that, if nothing else, I find that incredibly fascinating and a very rich scene to kind of continue to explore going forward, uh, which is the direction I find myself pulled in more and more and more. Yeah. We've got to embrace the woo. Yeah, to, to a certain degree. And, and I, I guess I, I, I want to walk that fine line of intelligently embracing the woo. Um, yeah, you know, and I, that, exactly. I, I know that sounds really snobby. It, it does to me. It sounds snobby to me. No, I, I, I see why it sounds that way, but I do see the necessity of it because a lot of people who embrace the woo uh, paint a too much of a woo picture for, for the rest of the world. Mm. And so it's too easy to write them off. Yeah. Uh, so the, the world of magic needs people who can intelligently talk about it and experience it and deliver it and and uh, access it for people who are maybe interested but either scared or um, worried about being viewed as or judged being worried about being judged I think is th the reason yes it's fear of being judged that keeps people away from these kinds of things uh, which was the one la the last question because we we um, I think we could probably talk all day. Um, Possibly so, yeah. <laughs> but but um, uh, do you help others to access these things, or is this your own personal uh, uh, trip? Um, yeah, um, both. And because uh, I think it comes from J.A. Abrams. There's an idea he, he calls preeminence, but amongst... Um, the package that he equates with preeminence is the idea that if you're working with a client, it's something like never let your client do anything that you do not think is in their best interests. So as a quote unquote coach, I often say to clients, look, I wear my biases on my sleeves. Many coaches will claim to 
operate purely from the client's model of the world. As far as I'm concerned, they're deluding themselves. There's no way you can operate purely from the client's model of the world. You can include it and incorporate it and be acute to it and aware of it. But ultimately, you're going to come from where you're standing. And you may as well know when you're standing and recognize that and own that. So sure. I, I say I wear my biases on my sleeve. I own my biases. And if somebody comes to me and they are looking to become a better linear micromanager of life, mm, this is, uh, you know, we're not going to work together because that's, that's not in my heart what seems like a useful direction. So when I'm working sure. with people, and, and the people I'm working with, really what they're looking to do is they're looking to become more generative as a sort of force in their own life. They want to be able to bring more, more goodness in, more wealth, more prosperity, more fulfillment into their lives. And they're looking to make differences in the world that they want to make. Some people, it's not all about their own lives. Some of them are out there and maybe they are engaging in a, a social movement. They want to make something happen. But ultimately, it's right. about making stuff happen. It's getting in the driving seat of your life. And so I, 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 for me, an important part of that is awakening people to effective ways of working with uh, complexity and nonlinear dynamics. So I sometimes talk about magic for some people, but for other people, I talk about nonlinear generative engagement. I'm actually talking about the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but what I'm seeing is like, look, if you want to treat these things as, as maps or conceptual renderings that shape functional engagement for working with complexity in order to get the outcomes that you want, that's fine. If you want to call it magic, rock and roll as well, it is magical whichever way you go. And that's an important thing for me. Is often that there's a, there's a phenomenological feel to it that's magical and the results start to get magical. And hey, come on, who wouldn't want to live a more magical life? Even if you said to the most dryly skeptical person, um, wouldn't you like a little bit more magic in your life? You know, if they understood that just on a metaphorical level, at least they'd go, well, sure. Do you see yeah. what I mean? Like who wouldn't, who wouldn't want a little bit more magic, a little bit more sparkle, a little bit more mmm in their lives, you know? So, <laughs> exactly. So, so to me, yeah, I'm totally biased. And a lot of what I'm doing is, is helping people wake up to that. What actually has happened for me in terms of my hypnosis stuff is where I'm at at the moment, some people are coming with me. And for some people, what I'm doing at the moment is a bit rich for them. And they're like, oh, could you just show me how to stick someone's hand to a table? Um, <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't really want to go down that alley yet. So I get it. I get that not everybody wants to, to wake that up in their lives. Um, yeah. But that's the thing I enjoy doing most. And another thing about my work is, is if I'm not enjoying it, it doesn't really make any difference how much it pays me. It's going to bore me and I'm going to want to stop doing it anyway. So, so I am into waking people up um, to the magical in life yeah. for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, chatting with me about it. Yep. This, is, uh, this has been very good. Great, great to connect. You know, if I, but, I don't know if you'll yeah, float man. through Edinburgh again or or London or something. Uh, I, I, I think I will be at some point. I don't know when that is, but I, I, I'm getting there's a pool that's taking me to that mindset. So I, I'm sure I'll end up there uh, within the next year or two. Um, bef before we end this, uh, 
where would you like people to come find your things or what engagement would you like to create uh, in terms uh, of websites and Twitters and wherever you have? So really, I'm, I'm quite YouTube-centric, um, generally speaking. I've got various websites and bits and pieces, but people can generally find me through my YouTube channel, which is James Trip Chaos Wave. Uh, if people are specifically interested in hypnosis, I have a website, which is hypnosiswithouttrance.com. Um, and if people wanted to engage me for coaching, uh, whatever that means, which is really more about <laughs> living as a creative force, living as a more generative force in your own life, um, that's on jamestrip.co.uk. But the YouTube channel is where I punt out most interesting stuff most often, I think. Yep. Great. Well, James, thank you for making the time and, uh, and uh, joining the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you inviting me on. Hey, man. Sleeket cower in timorous beastie, O oh, what a panics in thy breastie! Thou need na start, ah, say hasty, we bricklin brattle. I wad be lathe to rin and chase thee, we murrin paddle. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion. 
which makes thee startle. At me, thy poor, earth-born companion, and fellow mortal. I doubt now whiles, but thou may thieve. What then, poor beastie, thou mourn leave? A dame in nicker, in a thrave. Samson's request. I'll get thee blessing, we thee lave, and never missed. Thy wee bit howdsy too in ruin. It's silly, was the winds a struin, and Nathan knew to big a newin, and farga green, and bleak December's winds and suin, baith snell and keen. Thou saw the fields a laid bare and waste, and weary winters come and fest, and corsia here beneath the blest, thou thought to dwell, till crash the cruel quarter passed, out thou thy cell. That wee bit heap o' leaves and thribble has cast thee money a weary nibble. Now thou'rt turned out for a thy trouble, but house were held. To thole the winter's sleety dribble on Cranach's cowled. But Mousy, thou art no thy lane, and proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes o' mice and mean gang aft aglee. For lay us not but grief and pain for promised joy. Still thou art blessed compared with me. The present only toucheth thee. But ouch! I backward cast my ye on prospects drear. And forward though I cannot see, I guess, and fear. My apologies to uh, the Scots that may listen to this. My attempt to recite To a Mouse by Robert Burns. And it says uh, in the beginning of To a Mouse, I didn't, I didn't start with this part, but I like it. On turning her up in her nest with the plow, November 1785. I'll leave you there. Thank you for listening. Blessed be to thou and thine.